Please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 34. And uh, we're going to look at a passage that's kind of unique. It's the very end of what we call the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch's the first five books of the Bible. And, you know, generally everybody agrees Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible with the exception of the very last chapter of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is the last of the Pentateuch, and it's the account of Moses' death. I don't know how many people have autobiographically written about their death or written their eulogy, but anyway, that would be the, uh, the, the, the situation if we insist that Moses wrote this. It's probably Joshua uh, re- reflecting on how God called Moses uh, home, right? And, uh, and so you don't need to stand. I'm just going to read uh, verses 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Western Sea, the Negeb, and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. And then the days of weeping, spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this account of, of Moses. Thank you for the reminders of his, his power and his greatness. But for all that, uh, we know that he was just setting the stage for the true and greater leader that was to come. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, so as we look at, familiar with, you know, Moses was this tremendous leader of God's people, and Moses is mentioned again and again uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, So we want to talk about the leadership of Moses, and we want to talk about uh, the successor of Moses, because Joshua is also mentioned here in chapter 34. If you're new to the Bible or new to the church, if the word Deuteronomy doesn't sound familiar to you, that's fine. We're going to try to just break this down in ways that are going to be accessible you know, for all of us. But I want to tell you a little bit about Moses, uh, if you're not familiar with him. You know, he had been Israel's leader for the past four decades. Imagine you know, the Queen of England just had her 70th jubilee or something like that. 
leading the, the England as a, as a monarch for 70 years. That's a long time. Moses had led Israel for 40 years. Um, and so he'd taken them out of Egypt, delivered them from Pharaoh, delivered them from, from slavery, and he take, took them through the wilderness. And now they are just on the border of Canaan. They're in the area called Pisgah. There's some mount, they're at the, ba- the, the base and the, the valley and there's mountains. And God calls Moses up to yet another mountain. He had previously been up Sinai, right, to get the commandments and so on. Here he's going and ascending another mountain, this time to die. This will be the end of his ministry. This will be the end of his tenure as Israel's leader. In verse 7, it says that Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Wow, (laughs) that is some serious longevity. Uh, Probably miraculously sustained. This seems a little supernatural, right? Uh, I don't know how many of us want to live to be 120, but uh, if you do, uh, it would be nice to have your vigor unabated and your supernatural help. But nonetheless, uh, at 120 years old, I can imagine he was ready for retirement. You know, he was ready to kind of hand the baton off. And so this becomes this major, major leadership transition for Israel. Israel was getting ready for something that had not happened yet. Uh, they had always and only known Moses as their leader since they had come out of Egypt. This would be stressful for them. This would be anxiety-inducing uh, for the entire nation. And they would be without Moses for the first time. Moses was such a remarkable leader for his people that he is mentioned just all over the Bible. Some, some biblical characters are mentioned a few times, some pop up here and there, but Moses is ubiquitous. He's everywhere. I mean, imagine or just take a guess. You know, you don't have to shout it out, but if you just wanted to, you'd be fine too. How many times do you think Moses is mentioned in the Bible? Not just Old Testament, but New Testament too. I mean, it, 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 it's astounding. He's over eight hundred times his name appears in the Bible. Some of you have biblical names and you know you're reading and you come across like Lydia's named after Lydia in Acts 16 and we get to Acts 16. Oh, there's Lydia's name. Oh, that's nice. She gets one mention. You know, some of you, your name's John. Some of you are Paul. I don't know. Some of you are Peter. Some of you are Mary. You're like, yeah, there's me. I'm in the Bible. Like we would be so, it'd be so amazing to have your name in the Bible. And his name is in the Bible. Uh, and, and it'd be so remarkable, right? But here's Moses, and his name is in the Bible 800 plus times. And just to kind of give you a sense of how prominent that is, compared to all the other mentions of, of, of people in Scripture, Jesus is named 1,200 times. Like Moses is a close second, people, like all, over 800 times. So just, just a picture of the prominence of Moses, but it's time for him to depart. So so here's the end of Moses' ministry. He ascends Mount Nebo by himself, 120-year-old hiker, you know, heading up Mount Nebo by himself, and he gets to the top, and God gives them him this vision, this, this panoramic vision of what's to the west of him. As he as he that's there. 
that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is the promised land. This is Canaan that Moses is seeing, but not entering. Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land because you know, we don't have time to go into all the circumstances, but Moses basically was just, you need to know, he was not sinless. He, in his own particular way, through an outburst of anger, had participated in Israel's you know, national rebellion against God. And so the sentence for their rebellion is that that entire first generation, except for two people, we're not allowed to enter the promised land. It would be the second generation that would go in. So that's why you have the book of Deuteronomy. It's the second law. Deuteronomy means second law for the second generation, for this new uh, nation to go in and, uh, and follow God's commands as, as he intends for them. So Moses is a wonderful leader, but he's not a sinless one. So there are no perfect leaders. All leaders are, have, have some combination of, of fallenness and finiteness. We're all finite. We're all fallen. And actually, you need leaders. Good leaders are going to be men and women who embrace those truths that we're all fallen. We're all finite. So, you know, we need leaders who can admit that they're, they're, they're finite, that, that it's not their job to do everything as if God. So healthy leadership, you know, um, Moses would, would, uh, would exhibit this, this trait himself. He solicited helpers. He brought, he brought a team around him to compensate for his own limits and finiteness. And that's what made Moses' leadership all the better was because he was humble enough to admit he needed help. He needed judges, he needed counselors, he needed you know, um, people to raise his arms up uh, and, and uh, assist him in the calling that God had given to him. So he could humbly admit his finiteness, he could also honestly admit his fallenness. We need those kinds of leaders as well. You know, those who are gonna admit their mistakes, who will repent, of their sins, who will confess failures and ask for forgiveness. I mean, wouldn't that be refreshing in this age of leadership where everybody's just committed to spinning and blaming and you know, not taking responsibility? So uh, the Bible does give us uh, the example of uh, leaders who, despite their finiteness and despite their fallenness, can nonetheless be incredibly healthy and incredibly godly leaders whose, you know, names appear, goodness gracious, over 800 times in the Bible. So this is the first mountain um, that we'll look at here in Deuteronomy 34 under the leadership of Moses. But there's a second mountain that Moses appears on. And if you count Sinai, the third mountain that Moses appears on. But you have to get to the New Testament to see the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses appears again. So this isn't the last time you know, Moses is named a bunch of times in the Bible, but it's not the last time that we encounter him as a person. Even though this is his death, even though this is, you know, his burial, he shows up again. 
resurrected and glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses appears in glory alongside Elijah. Um, in Luke chapter 9, we read about how Jesus took Peter, the name of the mountain, uh, but it's somewhere kind of north, praying, and he's transfigured. And they go up on this mountain together with Jesus, and Jesus is praying, and he's transfigured. Um, it says that as he, was appear- as he was praying, his appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzlingly white. And behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. And that's an interesting word that Luke uses because the Bible is written, the New Testament was written in Greek. And that Greek word for departure basically is the same word you would use if you were translating the word exodus into Greek. They spoke to Jesus about his exodus. Jesus is bringing the people out of a news, out of the real slavery, the spiritual slavery of sin, and making them into a new nation, you know, a royal priesthood, a holy people who would belong to God and minister to the world, right? Who would be brought across the Jordan, be brought into the true promised land. And so this encounter with a glorified Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration tells us a couple of things. I mean, on the one hand, it's like, oh, good for Moses. He eventually did make it across the Jordan into, the, into Canaan. I mean, geographically, he was standing in the promised land. Now, he wasn't, he wasn't on the outside. He, he made it geographically in. But the truth is that it, at that point, it didn't matter anymore. It, it didn't matter anymore to Moses because he had already made it into the heavenly promised land, the true promised land, the only promised land that that ultimately matters for an eternity. And the second thing that comes into focus on the Mount of Transfiguration through Moses in this encounter with Jesus is that not only is is it put earthly promise, you know, the rest of Israel going into Canaan, what really mattered is he was in the true heavenly Canaan, the true heavenly promised land, and that we see in this episode, Jesus is speaking with Moses, and that Jesus is the true and better prophet and priest and leader of God's people. Moses then begins to fade into the background. Jesus is the true and better Moses. So as you look at, 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 at the role of Moses, how prominent he was and how great he was, he still is only setting the stage for his successor. So um, Moses had two successors, two Joshuas who would take the baton from him. The first Joshua we read about in, uh, in, in Deuteronomy 34 in verse 9, it says that Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him, and so the people of Israel obeyed him, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So it's really good that there was a successor picked out for Moses, somebody who was full of the Spirit, uh, who God had approved. He was anointed. Um, If you don't know who Joshua was, uh, he had been Moses' assistant, uh, we're told in uh, the book of Numbers, since Joshua was a child, like apprenticed to, to Moses since he was a young person. 
um, and, and had been with Moses really those, those entire, you know, 40 years of leadership. And then uh, at the end of, uh, in, actually, I'm sorry, back in, in Numbers chapter 11, we're told that uh, Joshua and Caleb joined 10 other uh, men who were spies sent into the land of Canaan. The 10 of those men came back and said, hey, the land's great, but those people are way too powerful for us, and there's no way we can do this. And Joshua and Caleb were the only ones who said, no, in fact, God is on our side. We can do whatever the Lord calls us to do if we put our faith in him. And for that reason, who physically made it into Canaan when they, when they crossed the Jordan. So Joshua was exceptional. He was amazing, right? And um, you, when you read about his succession in the, in the previous book, in Numbers, the book that comes right before Deuteronomy, we hear how Moses was um, called to, to put this succession plan together and says that, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep who have no shepherd, and the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom there is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. So in, in the book of Numbers, in the book of Deuteronomy, we're told twice now that Joshua is full of the spirit. He's qualified. He's exceptional. But despite Joshua's qualifications, he's still no Moses. Because in that same passage in Numbers 27, it says, you shall invest Joshua with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. Um, as wonderful as Joshua was, he wasn't as great as Moses. He wasn't Moses' peer, but he was his successor. When you get to the end of the Old Testament, people are still looking to Moses really as the penultimate leader. Yeah, David factors in there too, and we'll talk about David in our series 20 chapters uh, here in a couple of weeks, but Moses still is so prominent. You get to the very last book of the Old Testament, to Malachi, and Moses shows up again. Like he's still, he's still lauded as the leader of God's people. In Malachi 4.4, it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So why did God determine to have a successor you know, for his people? Why, did, was, why was there this... Um, so much attention given to a plan to have Joshua, that his people would be a sheep without a shepherd. We've, we've heard that before, right? Didn't that sound familiar to you? We, we've heard that somewhere else in Scripture, and that points to the, the second successor, the real Joshua, right, who's going to succeed Moses. And when Jesus went ashore, one of the times that, that uh, we're told about his ministry in Mark chapter 6, he saw this great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So Joshua is a, a Hellenistic way, or I'm sorry, Joshua is a Hebrew word that when it's Hellenized becomes the word Jesus. So Jesus' name means Yahweh saves, that's what Joshua means. Jesus comes along as the second Joshua, but he's not inferior to Moses, he's actually greater. And that's the difference between the first Joshua and Jesus. So the, the prophets used to say things like, I will give you shepherds after my own heart 
who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. God's desire, his purpose for his people is that they would not be without a shepherd, without somebody uh, to lead them. Uh, and, and you look at Moses and how great he was in, in Deuteronomy 34. Look at verse 10. It says, There's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And he did all these signs and wonders. He was so powerful, right? Like he's so great. But then you get to Jesus. And Moses, Jesus stays into the background. Jesus, Jesus is prominent. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than any other prophet, more powerful than Moses. He's the new Joshua who is not just a man, but he's also God. And so he's not constrained by human finiteness, and he certainly isn't guilty of human fallenness. You know, Moses, for all of his greatness, was fallen and, and finite, and Jesus is not. Moses um, in his ministry, for atoning sacrifices. And we looked at Yom Kippur and we talked about Passover in recent weeks. We need a sacrifice to take our sins away. And Jesus embodies that sacrifice. He has fulfilled all of them. When Jesus was on the cross as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, that meant an end to the whole Mosaic priestly system. That meant an end to all of those sacrifices. As great as Moses was and as many sacrifices as were, as were made under uh, the ceremonial law that was instituted by him, that all came to an end through Jesus because he fulfilled that need for a sacrifice. He fulfilled the need for you to have a sacrifice, for me to have a sacrifice. When our faith is in Jesus, it ends there. We're not looking for anybody to succeed Jesus. He's what everybody has pointed to. He is the one who fully and finally grants us not provisional forgiveness, but full and complete forgiveness for all who trust in him, for you and for me and for everybody, right? Um, so one of the other things that Moses did was he was talking about God's commands, God's laws. And so again and again, you know, like we looked at Malachi, people would refer to the law of Moses. But what does Jesus come and do? He says, I have come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, but to keep it as the true new Adam, the new Moses who, you know, keeps all the law in our place as our law-keeping representative, so that when we trust in him, we receive as a gift, as a credit, the righteousness, the law-keeping, the obedience of Jesus that is, that is regarded as our own, not because we've done it, but because Jesus did it and transferred it to us. That's why we look to Jesus as the ultimate law-keeper. He was the true obedient servant of the Lord. One more you know, way that Moses is pointing to Jesus in promises. Think of all the prophets and how Moses was the ultimate prophet. Well, Jesus surpasses all of them. He gives the true and final word of God. He is the word incarnate, right? So you know, remember when Jesus had risen from the dead and he had all these different encounters with the disciples and they didn't recognize him at first, but it was, you know, sort of be the surprise ending, like, hey, it's Jesus. Well, two of those were on their way to Emmaus. And Jesus appears to them, and they end up having this conversation. 
And, you know, Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is pointing to himself saying, Moses was talking about me. I'm the fulfillment of those promises. I'm the fulfillment of those commandments. I'm the fulfillment of those sacrifices. Hebrews just puts it plainly in chapter 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is the successor, the one who will not be succeeded. He's the end. He's the finality. And, and he's the ultimate. So what do we do as followers you know, we, we're, we're living in this long line, a, a lineage of followers uh, that go all the way back to Moses. And the original followers of Moses were supposed to have uh, spirit-filled leaders. God made a plan of succession that Joshua, who's full of the spirit, would lead, and then there would be those that would follow Joshua and so on. Um, and, and the leaders of God's people need to have God's spirit. Um, one of the things that, that Paul is explaining to the Ephesians in chapter 4 is the importance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, today is Pentecost Sunday, uh, as Mike reminded us. And this is the anniversary of when the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, after Jesus had risen. And then they get power from the Holy Spirit to go out and be uh, witnesses to Jesus in his resurrection. Ephesians 4, how the Spirit you know, leads us eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit makes us alive. The Spirit regenerates us and unites us after death you know, and sin had divided us. We looked at that last week, right? Death is the great divider of the living and the dead. But when we're made alive through the Spirit, we're united together through the Holy Spirit. And so in that spirit of unity, Paul goes on to say there's one body, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And then Paul transitions. After talking about the Holy Spirit, he then talks about one of the things the Holy Spirit was sent to do was to give us gifts. He himself is the greatest gift. We get the gift of God's presence with us, God, God with us, incarnate, tabernacling in each of us. But then along with the Holy Spirit, he gives us spiritual gifts. And the grace that was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift ends up being expressed in things like apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers who are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So ultimately, when, when we look for spirit-filled leaders, to lead God's people, just as Moses had the Spirit, just as Joshua had the Spirit. When we're looking for spiritual leaders, we're not looking for men and women who are going to do all of the ministry. We're looking for leaders who are going to equip the people to be ministers. Uh, Leslie Newbigin was a, a missionary and, and, and theologian uh, in India. And uh, one of the things that he wrote is that all truly past content, the training of others to be ministers of Christ and the rest not. We're not ordained in order that we be ministers and, and the rest not. We are ordained in order that all may be trained for ministry. And then this is what every pastor, every elder uh, needs to hear. The test 
of our ministry will be the extent to which our people become ministers. Does that make sense? Spirit-filled ministry does not think of itself as omnicompetent, I can do it all, I don't need a team. Spirit-filled ministry relies on others and trains others to become ministers themselves. On the back of the bulletin, Sung was pointing this out in the discipleship class this morning. Um, on the, I don't know the last time you looked at the very back that's got like the, the staff and the elders and the deacons. You see the very bottom in bold that says ministers? Every member, right? That's our goal. That's our design. That's, that's how we're trying to do ministry at Tabernacle is to have every single member a minister doing the, the ministry as, as spirit-filled uh, ministers. So this happens when we you know, pray for our leaders, when we have good, healthy uh, leadership. We could use certainly more elders and deacons. Uh, we certainly are in a transition when it comes to our staff, right? Um, so as our administrative assistant, I'm kind of, while we're on the back of the bulletin, I think it's fun to look and see, hey, this is the first week that Teresa Wilderman's name is there, and we're really, really thankful for God's provision for her. But we're going to miss Taylor, obviously. Uh, that's change. That's, that's, that's stress-inducing. That makes us anxious when we hear about change. If you weren't here last week, you also heard about another staff transition, how Karen is stepping away from her role as our worship director. And she's going to be starting full-time at Grace Christian School, and we completely endorse her with this move. Um, it's hard to do two part-time jobs well, right? I mean, you've got so many plates spinning as she works here, as she works at Grace Christian School. So now, hopefully, her life can be a little less crazy. Her family can enjoy more of her, and we want to bless the Palumbos. We're not here to be selfish about having Karen as our worship director, and how dare she? <laughs> well, okay, how dare she? But we're, we're happy for her. Anyway, um, and, but it's, we're, we're anxious, right? Like, who's going to lead us now? Who's going to direct the worship? And how are we going to fill in the gap? And what's next? What's new? Well, pray for that. This is one of those places where we need God to provide spirit-filled leadership. I don't know what our next worship director is going to look like because we have a the session and the, and the deacons and the staff, we're developing um, a person-driven model, not a position-driven model. So we know we need somebody to, to help lead our worship. Karen's been doing it admirably uh, in a part-time role. So we think whoever is going to take over for Karen will do that part part-time. But we're sort of assuming that it's going to be really difficult to find somebody with Karen's qualifications in a part-time capacity. Maybe, maybe this is going to be somebody who's going to move here. And, you know, and then nobody's going to move here for a part-time role. So we've got a full-time role that we're trying to develop. And that second part of their job description could have any number of responsibilities in, involved that would certainly bless this church. So we're not being insistent on what that other, the other 20, 25 hours are going to look like. We're keeping that of youth. It could be this person does pastoral care. It could be this person also does, you know, children's ministry. It could be this person is our church planting apprentice. And so depending on who the Lord brings to us, who that spirit-filled leader is going to be, could be a man, could be a woman, could be a director. It could be a pastor. In that case, it would be a man. Uh, and so we'll lead our worship and lead us in other ways that will bless this church and bless our community. So just a little window into kind of that 
that process. And I want you to also just not just pray for the next person, but pray for Taylor, pray for Karen. They're in transition and change is stressful for us and for them. And just pray that God would bless them. We're thankful that we're not, you know, saying goodbye to them. The Palumbos and the McNairs are still with us, just in different capacities. So anyway, um, yeah, I wanted to give you a window into that in case you missed last week's vision meeting. And just pray in addition uh, for who our new director of worship plus, you know, there's Disney plus and Hulu plus. And this is, this is worship plus. Who knows what that person is going to be. But in addition to that new staff member, uh, pray for more elders and deacons. We, we, we need our diaconate and our session augmented so that we can lead well and multiply well. We need not only new um, and more ordained leaders, we could use just more leaders in general. We need more Bible study leaders, more home group leaders, uh, more you know, nursery workers, more Sunday school leaders, more VBS workers. You know, like there's all kinds of places to lead. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can lead. And I'm gonna ask this question, is there a way where God is prompting you and pushing you and, and nudging you to step out into a leadership role. The best shepherds of God's people are men and women who love the sheep and regard the sheep the way Jesus did. When he saw the sheep were scattered, when they saw the sheep were needy, he had compassion on them. And he didn't want them to be without shepherding. Where do you see children or, or, or other men or other women at Tabernacle feeling scattered? Is God calling you to gather them? Is God calling you to lead them, to bless them, to serve them, protect them, feed them, watch over them, enjoy them, bless them? And yes, love the sheep the way Jesus did. The best shepherds ultimately are just good followers of Jesus. And if Jesus, on his path, if that meant that he was leading and shepherding and and, and gathering sheep, that means you're going to do that too, inevitably. There's no way you can't not lead in some sense. Everybody has influence on your peer group, your friend group, your family. You are leading. And if you have the Holy Spirit, that means you are Christ's representative to them. Some of you lead in a formal capacity, even an ordained capacity, Whatever way that you're leading in this church, I want to thank you. I know it can be hard. I know firsthand it's hard. But I also know firsthand it's rewarding. And I'm grateful to all, all of you, no matter what capacity you, you've uh, you know, taken on, what mantle of leadership you're bearing, it means a ton. And it's blessed this congregation immensely. So thank you for that. Let me wrap up by just talking not only about spiritual leaders, but spirit-filled followers. Because, we're all, yeah, we're all leading in some capacity, but we're also all called to follow. Uh, in Hebrews 13, it says to remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And the fact that Hebrews combines that comment on leadership and the importance of having leaders who we imitate and, the, and that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever means that Jesus, who gave the church leaders in the beginning, hasn't stopped. And we still lead leaders in the church. Uh, we, and Hebrews continues, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. 
where they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Leaders uh, take on a responsibility for the spiritual well-being of those in their fold. Uh, and I get it, um, especially currently in this climate and culture, is very I mean, you, all you have to do is open your news feed any day of this entire report released uh, last week or the previous week from the Southern Baptist Convention about like, their failures over decades to protect victims of sexual abuse in the SBC and how there was deliberate, deliberate cover-up, deliberate you know, um, efforts made to protect leaders and the abusers and victimizing the victims, you know, and, and it was awful to read. It's painful to read. But you know what? I so respect and admire the current leadership of the SBC for making this painful report public. This is in no way going to help the SBC, but they're doing it anyway. They're making the sacrifice because they know it's the right thing to do. And it's the right way to protect those victims and to identify the abusers. So leadership's costly, it's painful. And sometimes you look at the mistakes leaders make and you go, who needs them, right? Who, who, who needs these you know, folks who you know, seem to be abusing their power and have toxic leadership, whether it's secular or spiritual? And we become you know, understandably skeptical of leaders because of the sin that's in them. But that doesn't mean that there aren't still good leaders. There are either repenting leaders or unrepenting leaders. We want the repentant kind. So yeah, it's understandable. Sometimes the sin in leaders makes us, it's, it's not just the sin in part that we need to acknowledge and admit, all of us. It's, it's not just the sin in them that makes us hesitant about leadership. It's the sin in us. We think we got it figured out. We think we know everything. We don't think we need leaders. We've got, we, you know, we're fine. And we look at the leaders and the decisions they make and they lead in a direction we don't like. We balk. We think, what are they thinking? I mean, how can they do that? This is so dumb, et cetera, right? We love our autonomy. Submission is not natural. It's yours, right? The leaders will. And if we want our own kids to obey us and follow our lead, shouldn't we in some way as adults be modeling the same behavior? And if all our kids see in us is rolling our eyes and being impatient with the leadership, the God-given leadership that you know, he's placed over us, I'm not talking about being blind to sin. I'm not talking about unaccountable leadership. But just good, honest, godly, spirit-filled, fallible, finite leadership to still be able to say, those are a gift to me. Do you know that in the, in the Bible, a lack of shepherds, a lack of shepherds, a lack of leadership is a sign of God's judgment. The provision of shepherds is the sign of his blessing. We need shepherds and we need leaders. God didn't intend for us to wander aimlessly following our own inner compass. And good shepherds are here to help us see and experience the presence of the good shepherd. And we need more of him. And certainly, good shepherds help us see that. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us as your followers uh, to 
welcome and to pray for and to long for more uh, spirit-filled, good, godly leadership. We pray uh, for the leadership at Tabernacle, and we ask for your mercy. We pray that you would be merciful to us in our finiteness, and even, yes, in our fallenness. Give us humility and give us honesty, and help us uh, as we deal with these, uh, these limits, uh, that we would never replace you as our true shepherd, that we would consist- consistently follow you ultimately. And we pray for all of us as disciples uh, to know Jesus better and to, uh, to have healthy leadership and Lord, to possibly step into leadership roles that you are calling us to.